In this episode, I'm once again joined by John Mirden Reynolds, also known as Lama Vajranatha, writer, teacher, translator, and scholar-practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism. John explains his own involvement in Western occult systems, including ordination into the OTO and as a Wiccan high priest, and traces the history of the Western esoteric tradition from the Italian Renaissance to the present day. John describes how to accumulate magical power, explains the workings of the spiritual world from the perspectives of both Western occultism and Himalayan shamanism, and comments on subjects such as Aleister Crowley, John Dee, Enochian magic, and more. John also gives a detailed step-by-step -step description of tantric guardian spirit pujas, compares them to the spirit invocation rituals of Western esoteric systems, and warns against the dangers of working with occult forces without proper protection. So, without any further ado, John Mirden Reynolds. John Mirden Reynolds, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. I'm so pleased to be talking with you again. And the first episode we did together was enormously yeah. well received. And so I'm so delighted to be recording this sequel with you. Okay, good. And we left the last episode on something of a cliffhanger. And, yeah. well, sort of two or three cliffhangers, actually. There were lots of cliffs we were hanging off of. One of them was st stories about your llamas and your relationships with various llamas throughout your life. Yeah. Uh, Kangyo Rinpoche, Chacha Rinpoche, Dujo Rinpoche, Kala Rinpoche, Gyawa, Karmapa, many, many others. Yeah. That was one cliffhanger. And the other cliffhanger, and I'd like to start here if we, if we might, is your involvement in the Western mystical traditions. Um, okay. Now, I understand you were a third degree Wiccan high priest. So I'm very curious as to how your involvement in the Western mystical traditions came about. And also you've done research in your research, you've, you've compared the Western mystical traditions to Dzogchen, to Bern, and to Tibetan right. shamanism. And so I'd like to eventually get to that too, if we might, but perhaps we can start with the Western mystical traditions. How was it you first became interested in this? And could you trace your involvement? Well, first of all, I was not brought up as a Christian. Of course, I grew up uh, in a Christian uh, community in suburban New Jersey, but uh, my mother, she was uh, Irish Catholic originally, but she had left the church by the time she married my father. And of course, my grandmother, she, he, she sent me a, a catechism book and so on with the idea I'd go through catechism and confirmation, but my mother was totally against that. But on the other hand, I did persuade her now and then to take me to the Catholic Church in uh, West Orange, New Jersey, which was a beautiful Gothic building. And I certainly enjoyed the ceremony and ritual aspect of that, you know, uh, this priest wearing this interesting costume and then doing this ritual and, and speaking this mysterious language of Latin and so on. So aesthetically, uh, uh, I, I like that. 
but uh, my experience with the local Protestant churches was a bit different. Uh, the music could be very good, you know, hymns written by Martin Luther or something, but the commercials in between were always too long, you know, these talks by these uh, ministers and so on. So aesthetically, I didn't relate to that at all. And of course, my liking for ceremony and ritual is one of the factors that got me into Tibetan Buddhism. Because uh, in the United States, uh, which is largely Protestant, uh, there isn't so much understanding among American Buddhists why these Tibetans are doing all these elaborate rituals, pujas, all this kind of thing. Whereas Zen, they could really pro uh, process that because in the Protestant church, you sit there with your mouth shut. And so, okay, Zen became very popular in the United States. And uh, of course, Tibetan Buddhism became popular because of the great mystique of uh, Tibet, this uh, land, the mysterious land of psychic supermen and so on, you know, out of Doctor Strange, uh, Mandrake the Magician and uh, the Shadow and the, and the rest of it. But uh, uh, Catholics kind of intuitively understand how energy flows through rituals in a way that the Protestants didn't. So anyway, even though I was uh, baptized in the church, actually in both of them, my father uh, being uh, from Episcopalian Protestant background and his father, my grandfather having been a deacon in the church and so on, he insisted on uh, my being uh, baptized first, but as it actually worked out, I got the Catholic baptism before I got the Protestant baptism. But anyway, uh, both times when the priest or minister dumped cold water on me, I screamed and protested, but you know, being just a few days old, uh, they don't listen to you very much. <clears throat> So uh, I sort of uh, grew up then uh, outside the church and I started having experiences of uh, meeting uh, the spirits, first the water spirits when we were living in uh, Princeton, New, New Jersey. And they arose out of the water and they told me that they lived beneath the earth and uh, that they had these jewel-like cities down there. And uh, well, I wanted to go there. So at age three, I started digging a hole in the our backyard and my mother noticed I disappeared into this hole and she yelled for help from the neighbors and they pulled me out of it and so on. And uh, when they told my uh, father about it, I said, oh, they are uh, like reptiles and they live under the earth. So he thought, oh, they must be dinosaurs. And he took me to the Geological Museum at Princeton U University and pointed out the dinosaurs. I said, no, no, Tyrannus rex is much too big. No, they were nor normal uh, size. But he himself, 
in those days was a science fiction writer, as well as working in the shipping in industry. And uh, he got widely published in the 1930s in this pulp magazine. So we had in the basement a big collection of pulp magazines. I was most into uh, weird tales and read all the Lovecraft stories, uh, you know, uh, when I was still quite, quite young and, and so on, still very fond of, uh, of Lovecraft. But uh, my father had published uh, many other and many other uh, pulp magazines like five novels. And he was a close buddy at one time of uh, L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology after uh, the war. And uh, of course, they had lost contact uh, since, uh, you know, the war. But when uh, Hubbard passed away and obituaries were in the newspaper. My father said, my God, I know him. And he founded a religion. And I remember him telling me when we we're sitting in this pub on Third Avenue, saying, Jack, if you ever want to make money in America, found a religion, because that's where the money is. Anyway, I... <clears throat> And uh, later, when uh, we moved into uh, more nor northern New Jersey, I, we were right on the edge of the forest. And so I was uh, into the forest uh, a lot. And there were the tree spirits there and so on. But I early learned that you didn't, in America, you didn't talk about these things. Because with Christian people, uh, they all think it's the devil. And the scientific people, they all think you're having uh, hallucinations and they want to get you some help from a therapist or something. So, all right, I had an inner life, kept it quiet. I knew how to work uh, socially in the uh, uh, outer life. And I had my great uh, goddess experience when I was seven, seven years old. I didn't relate at all to uh, the Christian uh, symbolism, but I related very much to pagan symbolism because in third grade, when my father gave me Edith Hamilton's uh, Greek mythology, we started reading that and that I could really get, get into. Uh, I couldn't see this Protestant God who in the image presented to me was this stern judge you know, sitting there in the sky. And he was mainly concerned whether uh, young boys masturbate or not and punish them for doing that and so on. Whereas uh, Zeus, I mean, he spent his time uh, chasing after uh, goddesses, nymphs, and human women. This was a kind of god I could relate to. I didn't relate to the Protestant uh, god. And of course, also, my father had a very interesting family. There were many artists uh, uh, in it, and uh, particularly my great aunt Lottie. And we used to go out to Long Island in the summer and vi visit there. And she had married Joe Gosling, who had, was a sculptor and one of the uh, designers of the uh, for the San Francisco World's Fair and designed the streetlights in San Francisco Chinatown and the, this 
kind of thing. And even my grandfather started out as an architect originally and worked for the firm that uh, designed the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York. So we had this strong artistic uh, tradition in my father's uh, family. And uh, my father being a literary man and my great aunt Lottie being a, a, a painter and having all these, our house filled with the sculptures that had been done by her husband got me very, very much into uh, Greek mythology and uh, uh, making uh, images of the Greek gods and uh, so on. So I had that in inclination. Now, of course, uh, in the New Jersey suburb, nobody else was interested in, in that. So this was kind of a, uh, within the family, you, you might say, but uh, I was always fascinated by what was ancient, the ancient times, and by science fiction that's coming in, in the future. I mean, my father, wrote some not so good uh, science fiction stories. In fact, he had the first uh, cover stories for uh, Planet Stories, which was the first in the 1930s was the first science fiction uh, magazine. But he wrote, you know, these uh, space operas, you know, uh, like uh, the golden Amazons of Venus versus the scaly ones and the princess of uh, the moon and th things like this. A real Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon type of thing. You know? But uh, anyway, and I like comic books in, in those days and so on. And of course, as I said, I, I never uh, read the Bible, but I did read the comic books. So I knew a lot of uh, the stories you know, about Samson being outwitted by Delilah and uh, all this kind of, kind, of, kind of thing, but I didn't actually get to read the Bible until I had to teach it at the U university. And then, of course, I discovered it was fascinating literature, and I still re research in, in these uh, areas. Uh, as for anything as esoteric, well, in those days, all the scientific uh, uh, ma magazines and sci-fi magazines would have ads in it from uh, Amor, the ancient and mystical order of the Rosicrucians, uh, centered in San Jose, uh, California. And so I saw all those uh, ads and so on, but I never sent them any money or something. And uh, uh, but when going through high school, there were some other guys interested in sci-fi. So we used to uh, talk, talk about that. And then uh, I went to Columbia U University in New York City. And my interest in uh, Asia uh, only increased, but first of all, in ancient Egypt. Uh, but then I came to realize that uh, ancient Egypt was finished 2,000 years ago, and it's uh, gone. What we have left is uh, ruins and art in the museum and uh, so on. But there is still a living tradition in Asia, and I got into Buddhism through uh, reading the Evans Wentz uh, uh, book of the uh, uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, 
as I explained la last time. Uh, and I got involved with uh, theater work, both at uh, Columbia College and also across the street, Barnard College, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan Society. I was in that. I was often a stage manager and designed sets and so on. But I didn't meet anyone into something esoteric then until I went to California because uh, after failing to graduate from Columbia University and then getting myself uh, exempted from the uh, Vietnam War so I wouldn't be sent over there. Uh, my girlfriend and I, we drove out to uh, California and then I started meeting many people in, involved in different esoteric groups and particularly uh, the Theosophical Society. So I gave some lectures at the San Francisco Theosophical uh, Society. And it was also a valuable connection when I went to India um, because uh, my second wife, whom I met at uh, Berkeley, uh, became very interested in Hindu med meditation, and she had a teacher in uh, Berkeley, uh, Ishwaran. And uh, when we were going to uh, India in 1969, she asked him who she should see, and he suggested uh, Swami Omkar, uh, who had Shanti Ashram in Andhra Pradesh in South India. And so when we got to uh, India, uh, she went down there and I went up uh, north to visit for Dalhousie and Dharmsala, make contact with the uh, Tibetans and so on. And then uh, she wrote to me and say, please uh, come down here uh, after you're finished there with the uh, Tibetans and Swamiji will take care of uh, getting us a permit to stay in India. Because in those days, uh, people from the British Commonwealth like yourself had no problem going to India and staying as long as they wanted. But us Americans, uh, Indira Gandhi and her father before that, Pandit Nehru, didn't like Americans very much. And so it was often difficult for us to stay longer than the first uh, three or three months. But there was good karma operating here because Swami Omkar, turns out, was the Raj Guru for India. His chief disciple was Mr. Vivi Giri, president of India. So he just arranged our residence. And then we didn't even have to go in to see the superintendent of police. He would just send a man out to the ashram and would pick up uh, our uh, passports and return the next day with our residence papers for uh, the year. Later, when I tried to join Vishwabharati University at Shanti Niketan in West Bengal, then troubles developed again with Indian bureaucracy. But when we were at the ashram, everything was working beautifully. And then I could take uh, 
the express train in the Darjeeling Mail and go up to Darjeeling to see the llamas. Anyway, when I was down there as well, I spent some time at uh, Adyar and just south of uh, Adyar at Kalakshetra, an art school that was connected with the Theosophical Society. And uh, uh, I was also able then to use their air-conditioned library at Adyar uh, there. So I had this good relation with the uh, Theosophical uh, Society. So that's one aspect of Western esotericism. Uh, then when I had to return again to uh, uh, America, of course, I was uh, completely involved at that point in uh, Tibetan um, Buddhism with both my uh, Nyingmapa and Karma Kajupa co uh, co connections. And pre previously, uh, as I may have explained last time, I, I set up one of the first Dharma centers in, in the US before I went to India with uh, Tartang Tuku in uh, uh, Berkeley. And he had done me the good favor of publishing these Tibetan texts and asking me to distribute them to a list of lamas in India. And of course, then this was how I met Kanju Rinpoche, Chato Rinpoche, Dujum Rinpoche, Dojo Chan Rinpoche, et cetera, these Nyingmapa Lamas. Well, anyway, uh, I returned and uh, uh, the Dharma Center movement had started because Trungpa Rinpoche had come uh, to the US after I'd gone to India. So I didn't meet him until uh, I returned. And at that time I was uh, traveling with uh, Jawa uh, Karmapa, who was making his first visit to uh, the U.S. and invited to the U.S. by uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. So uh, when we went to uh, Boulder, then I did get to meet Trungpa Rinpoche at, the, at that time. And then I had friends who were in his uh, Dharmadhatu organization in New York and so on. Well, anyway, we set up then, uh, later we set up a Kala Rinpoche Center in New York, and for a time I was a Chokidara. Uh, that is, I was living at the, the loft, and taking care of it and so on, and working part-time for my father and, uh, and his uh, shipping office. And uh, then uh, finally Kala Rinpoche sent La, uh, Lama Norla there, and uh, then uh, uh, everything uh, changed. Uh, he started teaching the Ngundro, which was fine in itself. But then his translator was a lady from uh, Seattle, uh, from a very strong Protestant Christian background. And so the English translation of the Ngundro sounded like something you heard in a Christian church. And that led me to uh, uh, pull back. And then I made two uh, connections that I, I met some people who were involved in Wicca and some people who were involved in the OTO, the Ordo Templar or, or in Talos. 
And uh, one of them, uh, Jim Wasserman, uh, did some advertising work for me and we became quite friendly. And so on. eventually he invited me to join the uh, OTO and uh, originally it was Lushtow Lodge in uh, uh, New York, but then that uh, dissolved for various amusing re uh, reasons. And then it, uh, his Tahuti encampment was upgraded by Grady McMurtry, who I met at that time, uh, into uh, a, a lodge, Tahuti Lodge. And so I, took a, a Minerva uh, uh, initiation and became a member of it, although I didn't progress before beyond that because I say my real interest was with the Nyingmapa tradition of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But we used to meet regularly at that time and they would uh, stage the Gnostic Mass and so on. I never performed in the Gnostic Mass, but uh, I participated in uh, many of uh, many of their, these uh, masses and uh, so on. So that was my really only contract with the uh, Masonic tradition in, in the West because the OTO uh, was originally started by Rice in Germany. And then when he met uh, Alistair Crowley, uh, <clears throat> he licensed Crowley as the you know, the uh, OTO in Great Britain, etc. And uh, later uh, after Rice passed away and so at least some of the people recognized Crowley as the head of the uh, OTO. And uh, Jim uh, became uh, very active, uh, moved up in the uh, uh, hierarchy within the OTO. Uh, fine, and as I said, we'd have these meetings in New York and Grady McMurtry, who was then the outer head of the order, uh, frequently visited uh, New York at, at that time, and uh, uh, other people who were involved in it and so on. And uh, uh, <coughs> so that uh, continued for a time and uh, uh, Bill Breeze, who uh, also knew separately, but eventually he became uh, Grady McMurtry's successor as the OHO, outer head of the, the order and so on. And the last time I saw Bill, uh, which was in Ber Berlin some years ago, he said he still recognized me as a member of uh, the OTO, although I hadn't paid any dues in centuries. So, okay. <laughs> I, you know, liked having that uh, connection with the 93 current and so on, didn't have any problem. Well then, uh, Wicca developed very much uh, in uh, the United States, beginning in Long Island, uh, when Ray Buckland and his wife, Lady Rowan, uh, moved there from uh, the UK. And Ray had received his initiation into Wicca from uh, Monique Wilson, who had received it from Gerald Gardner, the 
source of, of this. And uh, the, some of the, uh, oh, I was taking care of the Kalaribiche loft on West 19th Street. And then on the ground floor, Herman Slater opened up the war, uh, wasn't the Warlock shop, that was the original name in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Heights, but uh, he changed the name to The Magical Child, and he was right downstairs, so we became very friendly, and I spent a lot of time hanging out there and buying uh, candles, different colors, and this kind of thing. And he set up an herb shop in the back of this, and among the uh, people, being employed there was uh, a lady, uh, Rhea. And uh, of course, uh, Rhea was a, uh, or, or Rhea, Rhea was her first name. She had some other last name at that time. But then uh, she and uh, her partner, Carol, uh, they opened up uh, another shop in the uh, East Village on uh, East Ninth Street called Enchantments. Now, at that that was just around the time when uh, I had been teaching these uh, uh, comparative religion seminars at the College of uh, Norichelle, and at that time the student body changed and the attendance fell off. And see, I was adjunct faculty. I got to teach a, a class if enough students signed up for it. And when they didn't, then the class was cut. I was out of a job. Well, I went to Rhea and she immediately hired me uh, to work in her shop and read tarot cards uh, for, for people there and uh, uh, ended up running the CASA, the cash register mainly, and uh, uh, so on. And uh, through her, then I got uh, initiated into Gardnerian uh, Wicca. And uh, so that lineage came down through Ray Buckland, but there was a, a split there and resulted in the, the witch wars in, in New York too, where he had gone down to Louisville, Kentucky and initiated people there. And some of the New York or Long Island people uh, like uh, uh, who were running uh, covens there didn't recognize people who had Gardnerian tra tradition from Louisville, which eventually included me because it came through Ed, Ed Brzezinski to Lady Mia to me. But anyway, I got uh, my first degree uh, initiation from her and some years later, uh, second and third. So yes, I am now a third degree Wiccan high priest in the Gardnerian tra tradition. But uh, that was kind of uh, on the side. And uh, uh, I also used to go to various uh, uh, 
pagan festivals in the States. That movement had uh, started up such as Starwood in New York State. And there were others in, in uh, Maryland and some other places and uh, give talks or lectures there. And then you get you know free admission otherwise you camped out and, and so it was a great uh, social scene you met a lot of uh, div different uh, uh, people you know uh, that that way so that brought me into the uh, neo-pagan scene in uh, the U.S. and uh, <clears throat> this was all also in my, my interest in uh, uh, comparative re religion and the practice of uh, religion nowadays in terms of uh, uh, society and uh, so on. And uh, <clears throat> also then I was uh, studying the Kabbalah because the main source of uh, uh, ceremonial magic in the West uh, came with the Renaissance with first uh, the Turkish conquest of uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, about uh, uh, 1458 or something like that. And there were many Greek scholars who uh, fled Constantinople and came to Northern Italy, including Firenze, Florence. And they brought the Hermetic tradition with them the Corpus Hermeticum, and, uh, uh, and that was translated by Ficino, uh, sponsored by uh, the Duke of uh, Milan. In fact, he requested he do that before the Dialogues of Plato, which in the Greek had also been lost to the West. And so it was brought in. Uh, so that was one strain. And then uh, with the Christian completion of the Christian conquest of uh, Spain in 1492, the same year that they said Columbus discovered America, uh, uh, the Jews were, as well as the Muslims, were expelled from the country and the learned Jewish rabbis in the Kabbalistic tradition also uh, came to uh, Northern Italy. So, uh, Pacino, who was a, uh, a clergyman, uh, he translated the Hermetic tradition into uh, Latin, and hence it became uh, available uh, throughout uh, Europe. And he called it this method uh, natural magic, because it's seeing the uh, world or the universe as an organic whole, whole and then different parts of it are in communication with each other in terms of uh, sympathies and so on. And so you can draw down uh, higher celestial powers, you know, into uh, what uh, your activities and your rituals here on earth through working with correspondences and so on. And the other with, uh, was with uh, Pico uh, Mirandola in Rome, who learned Hebrew and became a, a disciple of Kabbalistic rabbis and started translating and talking about the uh, Kabbalah and the, uh, their traditions of uh, 
uh, magical invocation and so on, using the names of the angels and uh, so on. And so these two were joined together and then with uh, astrology and alchemy and uh, it formed then the uh, basis of the Western esoteric uh, and ceremonial uh, tra tradition. And then uh, Reuchlin and so on brought it up to Germany and it, it spread into other countries and into the UK, particularly with uh, Dr. D, who was a Welshman and also he was Queen uh, Elizabeth's uh, astrologer and he had made contact with the Kaiser Rudolf in Prague, who was a big patron of the uh, Kabbalah and alchemy and uh, all, all, all this. Uh, just uh, before the Thirty Years' War began, the big war between the Protestants and the Catholics in Central Europe. And uh, <clears throat> so that uh, tradition continued, but then the big change in the 17th century was with the rise of modern science and uh, the modern uh, view of a mechanistic universe and so on with Galileo and Newton and whatnot. And so then that Renaissance tradition went somewhat underground as an alternative uh, culture. So like uh, when I went to the university, I knew all this, so I didn't mention any of my interests in uh, uh, Buddhism and Asian re religions or in uh, the esoteric tra tradition, because I found many correspondences here, such as our work in uh, Buddhist Tantra and the rituals there. There are many things which correspond with the Kabbalah and uh, uh, ceremonial magic from earlier period. And of course, then the uh, esoteric tra tra tradition got uh, some revival in the 19th century, uh, particularly with uh, Alan Kardec, first uh, from uh, 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 France, who reintroduced the idea of reincarnation, which had been banned by the uh, church uh, ever since the time of uh, the Emperor Justinian, and, uh, and then uh, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century with uh, Madame Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott establishing the Theosophical Society. And uh, then in London, the establishment of uh, the Golden Dawn with uh, Westcott and Mathers and so on. And of course, that's where uh, Crowley uh, originally uh, started. And uh, later, uh, these rituals were all uh, published by Israel Regardy and so on, they're now uh, available. And all the secrets seem to keep coming out in public these, these days, getting on the internet and so on. So, uh, I had uh, then also gotten involved in the Western uh, esoteric uh, 
tra tradition, but uh, although my emphasis would focus was principally on the uh, Nyingmapa and later Bongpo tra traditions of uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Gosh, that's that's a fascinating account. Um, I have several questions actually. Yeah, you anticipated my question about your take on the historical um, streams that informed Western esotericism in the 20th century. You anticipated yeah. that question. Um, what do you, and you mentioned John Dee, what do you make of John Dee's Enochian system that he derived with Kelly in, um, in that time period? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, it is specialized that uh, this was a channeling that uh, came through Kelly looking into that scribe's uh, stone seeing uh, the angels and so on. But it is an, a uh, magical uh, system. And uh, uh, it has uh, been used beyond the system itself because in Wicca, the invocation of the watchtowers is actually taken out of that. Uh, the main source that uh, uh, Joe Gardner used, he had been initiated into a witchcraft group uh, by his friend Dafo, but he was under strict vows not to say anything about it. So that meant he had to create Wicca then. And his main source was, of course, a Kabbalistic text, the Key of uh, Solomon. And uh, so he even used the term athene, which occurs in that text and so on. And with the emphasis about constructing the mag magical circle and so on. And uh, he was also familiar with the Tantra because the works of Arthur Avalon were already having been uh, published and so on. And uh, there wasn't anything yet really about, uh, you know, Tibetan Tantric Buddhism that uh, really came uh, much uh, later, although Waddell had written his early book about uh, Lamaism and so on when he set up a temple in Darjeeling and hired a couple of Nyingmapa Lamas to come and do rituals. Uh, but uh, he presented a lot of that material as sort of, you know, curiosity and so on, like looking just a little bit into black magic, but not getting involved very, very much with, with it. And um, so things uh, became very much what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche called the spiritual supermarket in the West is we've entered into this age of multiculturalism and so on. So people can draw on different things. And of course, maybe it gets a little too soon superficial, some versions of the chaos magic and that. But uh, this is the scene that's uh, happening these, these days. I wonder with your facility for 
communicating and seeing various spirits you mentioned, mentioned water spirits and tree spirits and so on. And we discussed actually some other anecdotes in the previous episode. Yeah. So I wonder when you began to interact with these Western esoteric systems, some of which we mentioned the Enochian, we could mention the Goetian, other kind of systems have grimoires of uh, entities of various types, angels and so on, that one can call upon and converse with or in some in some ideas bind and so on and that's something that one can also see uh, a bit of i think in the in the nagpa traditions of of tibet all sorts of uh, rituals and so on involved with the lu and the various different spirits there yeah. uh, working with them how did your if you want talent for that side of things interact with this period were you did you uh, attempt to conjure uh, entities did you attempt to communicate them with them, did you attempt to bind them or command them, etc., as is sometimes done in these circles? I was doing contact with them largely through med meditation, and I wasn't seeking to uh, bind any spirits as servitors or something like, like this. I mean, when I in this in, the, in New York, there was a time because my father was away or something, I was really short of cash and so on. I started doing invocations of goddess uh, Lakshmi. And all of a sudden, then I had a sale to Reader's Digest and got several hundred dollars. Cool. Uh, when I really needed it, it was uh, when my scene fell apart in uh, Denmark, and I had moved there originally because I got into an affair with a Danish woman and we got married at this and I actually, after the death of my mother, had some money and bought a house there and so on. But as happens often with re-relations, things come together, but they also uh, can come apart and uh, when my uh, then Danish wife uh, left, I suddenly found myself owning a house in a country where I didn't speak the language and so on. So I sat down and started doing uh, Ganesha and Lakshmi practice very intensely. And suddenly I was able to sell the house after having recently bought it and make a profit on it. Uh, and not a loss. Now, it didn't mean then I thought I, I would be a successful estate agent. No, I mean, the profit actually went to the estate agent that I was dealing with. But the thing is, I felt really blessed by uh, Lakshmi and Ganesha Ganapati then. But of course, I had met them earlier in India when I was living at the ashram. Uh, we read about Hinduism in the West, of course, and uh, the great gods, uh, Vishnu, Shiva, Krishna, and so on. But uh, on the ground in India, it isn't always that way. Uh, where I was, certainly, uh, Lakshmi and Ganapati or Ganesha were the most popular deities among ordinary people, farmers, and this kind of thing. So I felt a very uh, strong connection with them. And of course, uh, we also have them 
and uh, Buddhist practice too, so no problem here. And uh, so I was uh, largely working in that way rather than casting a circle and having a triangle of the art in front of me and trying to get some spirit to manifest in the, in the circle. I, I wasn't doing that. And I'm curious, you mentioned Crowley, Gardner, and some others there. What did you think of Crowley's ideas and system? For example, there was quite a bit of crossover in, in some of his writing, like book four, for example, yeah. with yoga and yogic Patanjali uh, influenced yogic ideas and so on. Um, and really quite a, as well as his, if you want, view, there was quite a lot of practice there in his system and his approach. Did you experiment with that? What do you make of it? Um, was it an influence at all? Well, you know that when Crowley joined the, the Golden Dawn, his principal teacher was Alan Bennett, who was a, a definite uh, psychic and, and so on, and taught uh, Crowley many things. But Bennett was very much drawn to Buddhism and then left and went to Sri Lanka and so on, and actually became, I think, the first uh, British-born Buddhist uh, monk, and later uh, re returned to the UK as Ananda Patea, I think, and uh, was teaching uh, Buddhism there and so on. So, uh, you know, uh, Crowley grew up in the spiritual super, supermarket like we do, and he found uh, Patanjali Yoga very useful for developing one's magical capacity and uh, so on. And uh, in the Buddhist tradition of Vajrayana, also you develop your two, your magical capacity, uh, mainly through doing uh, sadhana uh, practice, where you transform yourself in your med meditation and then in your rit ritual into a god form or into uh, a med meditation deity. And if your meditation becomes powerful enough, you can access the uh, powers, capacities, wisdoms, qualities, and so on, traditionally associated with that meditation deity, and then use it in your uh, meditation. If you develop that enough, uh, then you can project that energy into your external environment. So in terms of the process, there is first seva, where you are drawing energies uh, into your uh, self through your meditation practice and invocations and uh, ritual and so on. And then secondly, there's sadhana, where you increase your psychic and magical capacity within the vessel of your uh, own body that's often symbolized by the bija mantra in your heart chakra, which is the essence of your meditation deity, but also of your own uh, consciousness. And then surrounding that is the mantra mala, uh, 
which uh, looks like a, a, a rosary. So it looks something like a hydrogen atom and it revolves around and generates energy much like a, a dynamo in the mountains, you know, turning around and generating uh, uh, electricity. And so you increase your uh, mantra shakti or mantra city or mantric power within your uh, self in the meditation. And then uh, at the third phase, which is called uh, karma yoga, and of course this is a bit amusing now because this term karma yoga in the West has come to mean you do uh, work for some uh, spiritual center or dharma center without getting paid for it. That wasn't the original meaning here. Uh, yoga means you unification and karma means meditation and ritual activity. And uh, when you have accumulated and developed sufficiently your mantra city, you are then able to project it out to bring about effects and transformations within your uh, immediate environment and do such things as uh, healing and uh, so on, but also attract uh, success, uh, prosperity, and uh, so on. Uh, so you, in order to be effective in working magic, and that includes if you are going to uh, subdue any uh, spirits, uh, you have to develop your two or your magical capacity first. And you do that through uh, sadhana practice. Now, when you're doing sadhana, you visualize and think of yourself as the Edom meditation did. But when you're doing guardian practice, this is more like a Wicca and ceremonial magic. You have established a sunkor or a, uh, we would call it magical circle, but it's actually a sphere of protective energy around yourself. And then in front, you can call various uh, spirits. Now, if they're guardian spirits who have been uh, either emanations of enlightened beings, like great bodhisattvas, like Mahakala is, or they have been uh, spirits that have been uh, subdued and converted by some master in the past, such as Padmasambhava or so on, and have taken vows to protect the Dharma and practitioners of the uh, Dharma, then uh, there is no problem. But in the retinues of many of these guardian spirits, uh, there are trekpa, that is spirits that are still Okay, they kind of been subdued and converted, but not too much. And they can become very irritated with you if you uh, don't do things properly. So it's important here uh, to realize these uh, two uh, principles. For example, uh, at the, every mo monastery, Buddhist Debopo and so on, around uh, sunset, or evening time, because the spirits come become stronger after the sun uh, sets. 
they do the guardian pujas uh, at the, that time, the monks all gather. And the uh, principal uh, officiant does the meditation of transforming himself into some fig, uh, powerful figure. Could be Padmasambhava, could be Mahakala. Well, if the spirits come and they see Mahakala looking like something like a Arnold Schwarzenegger out of a Terminator film, uh, they are suitably respectful, uh, respectful and subdued and behave themselves. Uh, uh, but if you just look like you do ordinarily, if uh, the spirits are emanations of great bodhisattvas who are infinitely compassionate and infinitely patient, no matter what you do, they are compassionate and patient. But with these other guys, the lesser ones who come, uh, they are not. They might become offended. Who's this guy calling me here? You know, who's he think he is? All right, let's teach him a lesson, something like, like this. So that's why you do this ladru first and become a powerful figure before you call any uh, uh, spirits. Secondly, you make sure you always have puja offerings for them. Puja means an offering ceremony because our relationship with the other world of uh, the spirits, both the lower levels and the higher uh, levels, is in terms uh, is in terms of reciprocity, the exchange of energies. We give them energies uh, in terms of the puja offerings we give to them, and then we can expect something in return uh, from them. They can do various things uh, for us. It's like uh, offering bakshish or bribe or something, or, or paying rent or something like this. Like when you uh, first do uh, a practice in, a, say, a new place or outdoors, you first do this uh, uh, kartor practice, the offering of a, a white uh, torma uh, to the local spirits and ask them permission uh, to set up your mandal and do your ritual there or your meditation practice there. And please don't be offended if it seems I'm doing some strange things and so on. It's like paying rent, you know, to temporarily use a, uh, a flat. So this practice of offering tormas is very important in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, a torma is a vegetarian substitute for the for a blood sacrifice for the sacrificing of uh, an animal. Now, when a sacrifice is given, like in ancient Greece, Rome, and so on, they slit the throat of the animal. The blood flows uh, on the stone altar. Uh, but that releases the vital energy or the prana and the lower spirits feed upon that. The higher spirits, they don't need that. They are up in the higher reaches and so on. God does, doesn't need your sacrifices. You don't have to sacrifice a goat for him once a year 
as they did in traditional Judaism and in Islam and so on, or as they do for uh, Kali, you know, at, uh, in Calcutta and whatnot. Uh, but the lower spirits do uh, feed uh, uh, upon that. And uh, then you have given to them. And so then you can instruct them uh, to do things for you. Now, ordinary, when you do an elaborate uh, puja ceremony, uh, the, the sadhana itself always has the gundro, the preliminary section, the moshi, which is the uh, uh, principal practice, and the jay, uh, which is the concluding practices. And in the moshi, or the, the pre preliminaries, after the going to refuge and generating the bodhicitta vow, uh, which is the motivation for you doing any kind of Buddhist uh, practice. You know, it's that uh, feeling of uh, compassion for all suffering beings and your intention for doing Dharma practices is to develop the capacity to help relieve the uh, suffering of all, all sentient beings and samsara. So, so that is stated uh, at, at first. And usually you do that with the visualization in front of you. It may be a single figure, your principal yidam, meditation deity, or it can be the tsoche, a much more elaborate uh, figure. It, it looks like the tree of life with big guru figure in the uh, center of it. And then you have the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas and the Arhats and the Dharma books uh, behind uh, the meditation deities and Dakinis down below and the lineages of the gurus above. And then before that image, you go to refuge and then generate the bodhicitta. At the conclusion of that, you absorb that projected image, dissolving it into light, you reabsorb it into your self. That gives you the capacity to transform because now you transform yourself into a generic wrathful deity, such as Higher Griva, for example. He's a, a specialist in mantra power and uh, magic and so on. And uh, then if you're practicing for the first time in a new new space, whether indoors or outdoors, then you do this kartor uh, practice. And you have prepared a white torma, which is what kartor means. Now, as I said, uh, in the old days, in the time of the Buddha, you had many nature spirits, the yakshas in the forest and the nagas in the water. And the yakshas could be quite uh, wrathful at times, and they were often propitiated with blood sacrifices. But the Buddha was totally against this as the unnecessary uh, causing suffering to sentient beings. And so he and the Buddhist Sangha developed the practice of uh, uh, Bali or 
in Tibetan, it's called torma, which is this vegetarian uh, substitute for a blood sacrifice, for a, a sacrificial uh, animal. And of course, the uh, Tibetans developed this into a fantastic temporary art with very elaborately sculptured torma cakes. Uh, in India, originally made of rice, but in Tibet of uh, uh, tsampa, ro roasted barley uh, grain. And it's mixed with, with water and butter and uh, sculptured. And uh, uh, the white torma, of course, is that kept the white and their natural color. But then after you have uh, presented the white torma uh, for getting permission to use this uh, uh, space for your practice to set up the precincts of uh, the mandala. Setting up the mandala in Wicca is what we call casting the circle. And uh, then you have to set up the uh, protections. And so with that, you have the gektor, the obstacle torma. And uh, this is the second torma. The torma you hold on a small plate on your left hand like this, so you show it to the uh, spirits. Now, the obstacle torma is painted red with vegetable dye in order to suggest that it's uh, flesh and blood. And this is then uh, presented to them. And then the uh, spirits are uh, summoned with the mantra. Now you had two kinds of spirits. You first uh, had the uh, Sheduk, who were the local spirits in that, that place. You made peace with them. But then you also have the Trungpa, or uh, Bhutas, they're called in uh, India. And even nowadays, that's the usual word in Hindi for a ghost, a boot. And uh, they are wandering spirits. They're not bound to a particular geographical location or feature, but they come and go. And uh, so these wandering spirits, so you now invite them and you present them with this torma cake and you tell them how beautiful and please uh, uh, partake of it. And of course, some people in the West think, oh, the spirits are stupid. How can they be fooled by, by this? You know, you're not offering them blood and flesh. You're offering, but the spirits see what you're visualizing. And you've done the ritual first with your meditation, where you have called down and projected into the Tormake higher spiritual uh, energies. You first cleanse the offering by uh, sounding uh, Ram Yam Kam, where you visualize the wisdom fires evoked by Ram red wisdom fires coming out of your heart chakra and burning away all the uh, impurities on the torma cake. Secondly, you visualize the green wisdom winds coming out of your heart chakra and blowing away all the ashes of uh, the tor uh, torma cake. And finally, you visualize the white wisdom waters coming out of your heart chakra and washing away any uh, 
remaining impurities. So this is the sangha, this is the cleansing of your uh, uh, offerings. And in this case, it's the karma cake, but it could be a whole series of uh, offerings that you have on the altar in front of you. Then the second process of the jangwa is purifying. They've been cleansed, now you purify them. Now see, you are still seeing this torma cake with your impure karmic vision. This is a vision you possess because karmically you're a human being in this life. So you see things the way humans do. You don't see things the way a dog does, for example. But you now transform that impure karmic vision into pure vision, which is the way enlightened beings see things. And so you then close your eyes, which simulates a sensory deprivation experience or shunyata, emptiness. But emptiness doesn't mean nothing at all. Emptiness means the pure potentiality for all possible manifestations, like space itself. If you have something manifesting, there has to be safe, a space for it to manifest. So you then visualize this magnificent horodharma cake, like one of these Western wedding cakes that are seven stories high. And so this is then what the uh, spirits will, will see. And thirdly, you do the chinlap, that is the calling down of higher spiritual energies and projecting them into uh, the Torma cake or the puja offerings when you sound Om Ah Om, where Om uh, invokes the enlightened body aspect of all the Buddhas, Ah invokes the enlightened speech aspect of all the Buddhas, and Hum invokes the mind aspect of all the Buddhas. And so, You've gone through those three processes and then you have the proper offering for the spirits and then you call them and you present it to them and say, please feed it this. And you see them gather around the torma cake and their tongues come out and become like long tubes going into the torma cake and uh, drawing up uh, uh, the, uh, the juice or the, uh, the nectar of the energy, which is psychic energy, which has been projected into the cake, because that's what they're feeding upon. They're not feeding upon the actual uh, material of uh, uh, the uh, roasted barley flour and the uh, vegetable dye, this kind of magic. And uh, then you say, okay, now please be satisfied with this. Now, uh, Go away, return to your own uh, places, and don't cause us any uh, problems in, in the future while we're doing our practice here. But some of these spirits maybe aren't satisfied. They were calcitic. They're kind of difficult to end this. So at that point, you have to manifest yourself as a wrathful wrath deity. And so you hold up in your right hand your uh, dorje or vajra, or else the uh, three-bladed dagger known as a purba. 
and you show that to them, and then you threaten them that if they don't go away and don't call, uh, and cease to cause problems, then they will be smashed with this Vajra or Purba and their heads will be crushed and so on. So then you have to have the mantra city to be able to uh, intimidate them and make them go, go away. So they're not just sitting there laughing at you. <laughs> so <clears throat> then you have uh, dispelled all uh, ne negative energies and you erect around yourself the sum core from the seed syllable, say hum, for example, in your heart chakra, the blue rays of light come out and on the tip of each uh, a ray of light, there's a Vajra Dorje, a diamond-like scepter, and then this creates a sphere. As I say, it's more than a magical circle because it's not just in every direction, but above and below also. And that creates, and then sounding run, you invoke the wisdom fires, which uh, the seed syllable run drops out of you down below your protective sphere and uh, that syllable gives birth to the fires of wisdom which rise up and these uh, fires uh, completely surround the uh, protection sphere or suncor and then as a third level you can also have guardian spirits outside the, the fires facing outward bearing various weapons so if any negative energies or evil spirits approach they will be attacked by these guardian spirits they'll be burnt up by the fires of wisdom and they won't be able to penetrate uh, your protection sphere which is made of diamond which is the hardest sub substance known. Uh, but on the other hand, it's translucent and light can pass through it and so on. Well, once you've uh, uh, done, uh, done this, uh, you have your suncor, your magical circle, then you uh, do the yeshiwapa. Uh, uh, this is calling down the higher spiritual energies into the precincts of your uh, uh, mantle. And again, you invoke the, uh, the Buddhas of the three times who are symbolically up there in heaven and their spiritual energies, chinla for blessings, descend like rays of light. Uh, into the precincts of your mandala, which is inside your uh, ma ma magical circle. And then the last task uh, you have to do is to consecrate the puja offerings you will use in the course of the sadhana. And if you're going to have a tantric feast, or Gana Puja afterwards, you also have many uh, offerings uh, which will be used at that point. And also they will be partaken by, in terms of food and drink, by the participants in the Tantric uh, feast. So something like a party, which would, could also include singing and dancing and song. Uh, so that is all in the uh, Mundra or the 
preliminaries to the sadhana. So you have that invoking of spirits uh, like we have in ceremonial magic and uh, like in Wicca and uh, so on. And uh, then uh, you have the what would correspond to the drawing down of the moon <laughs> uh, where the leading uh, officiant uh, or the Vajracharya who's doing the uh, the ritual or the sadhana uh, transforms into the Edom meditation deity, which can be a male deity or a female deity. And uh, then another, when you're doing this as a med meditation, you are creating for yourself a virtual reality. I mean, people nowadays are very much into these uh, video games and so on. They've been doing even before that role-playing games and, and so on. Well, here it's all combined in your tantric sadhana med meditation because you are not outside looking at the action on a, a screen in front of you. You are in the center of the action. You find yourself inside this sacred space, which is the mandala. And you are seeing everything happening there through the eyes of uh, the Edom. So you are the director. You're creating your own soap opera here. You're telling all these other figures, which have, of course, they're symbolic in terms of different mental processes and so on what to uh, do. And so a drama happens inside here, which is like a, a royal court. And um, all right, you first are doing this as a visualization. Uh, and this is these, uh, what is visualized are known as the samyasattva, the symbolic beings. But uh, they are something created by your mind. And although in this present life you may be very beautiful and so on, still your mind has its limitations. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, what you are visualizing is a pure vision. So at the same time, it acts as a pure receptacle for the invocation of the spirit, of the higher spiritual powers to descend into your uh, visualization, what was called uh, by the ancient Greeks, uh, theurgia. And so you're calling down the celestial uh, energies into the image. The ancient Egyptian priests would make a, a clay image or a wooden image or whatever in front, and then they would do the ritual meditation and call down the higher spiritual energies to enter into it, to enliven and ensoul it, so then you could enter into a dialogue with, with it and receive prophecies of the future and so on. Well, here you're doing something similar, but the image isn't the statue you make, it's your visualization. And so your visualization becomes the residence for the spirit that you invoke to descend into it. Now, of course, when your visualization includes yourself, this is something like spirit possession and so you can have phenomena uh, 
similar uh, to that, but it's more like what they call in California channeling, where you haven't exited your body and a spirit just moves into it. No, you're aware still of being you, uh, looking like the Eden meditation deity, but also feeling the spirit of the Eden meditation deity dwelling in you with all its powers, capacities, wisdoms, and uh, so on. And so then you have the, uh, uh, you practice self-empowerment uh, and you see the uh, five deities of uh, initiation appear upon, above your head, bearing these flasks or vases of initiation and they pour the contents, which look like luminous waters onto the crown of your head. Uh, passes down your central channel through all your chakras and channels. And so filling your entire body, you become luminous and filled with light and so on. And uh, <clears throat> uh, you also uh, greet the descent of uh, the spirits like uh, they are honored uh, guests, but they're also you know, the spirits in you. So then how do you make offerings to yourself as an honored guest? So you project out of your heart rays of light which manifest in front of you as eight or 16 puja devas. And they are dancing and singing they're very beautiful and scantily clad and attractive and so on. And they pre present various uh, puja offerings. They're the uh, traditional outer puja offerings, which were given in ancient times uh, to honored guests who show up at your the door of your, your house and so on. Then you have the inner puja offerings, which are a bit more wrathful, including uh, 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 nectars and torma cakes and uh, so on. And then you have uh, the this is, in, this is a high tantric practice, so there isn't any of this uh, silly puritanism to be found here. So then you have the secret offerings, and then the puja devis call in their boyfriends, the dakas, and they come dance, dance again, and they do this dance, and then they engage in uh, sexual intercourse. And so the bliss experienced in sex, that's the secret offer here. And uh, after all this uh, activity, you then engage in the mantra recitations, which as I was explaining before, you have seva, sadhana, karma, yoga. Now, the mantra recitation, ma mantra japa, first of all, uh, functions to authenticate and stabilize your vi visualization because all this activity is happening around you continuously and you are the meditation deity, whether it's a single figure or uh, in yab yom with a consort, so on. And uh, when that uh, energy becomes uh, 
very powerful, then it can be projected. For example, you see the rays of light go out and on the outer parts of your mandala, you have all the lesser guardian spirits and the rays of light from your heart then strike their heart center, which then activates and puts them into action. And then they go and start beating up on the bad guys who are everywhere and so on, or accomplishing different functions and so on. And you see this happening while you're reciting the mantra and you have the mala in the left hand and uh, uh, so on. And uh, then when that all comes uh, to a, a culmination, then you do the dissolution of the visualization and so on, which is the, uh, part of the concluding part where the walls of the manda are absorbed into the secondary deities. They are absorbed into the principal deity. The principal deity is absorbed into the seed syllable in the heart and then the seed syllable from the bottom gradually dissolves into just a point of light which then uh, is absorbed into empty space. And that's when you have the opportunity to find yourself in uh, the state of uh, contemplation, uh, otherwise known as uh, Dzogchen, because you have used up all this mental energy over a period of time while you've been creating this virtual reality for yourself and suddenly you relax and stop. It's like uh, you suddenly stop doing hard physical labor or some extreme sport and you just collapse. And at that moment, your mind stops. And uh, at that time, you have the potentiality to find yourself in the natural state of uh, uh, Dzogchen. But inevitably, then external stimuli return the sounds and uh, uh, sights, your environment, and so on. And then you enter into the post meditation experience of the Jetop, and then you uh, recite the dedication of merit, various aspiration, prayers, benediction, or best wishes, like, like that. If you're doing a very uh, big, big practice, you might then have many torm offerings uh, to the various guardians of your tradition. For example, when we do such a, a puja practice in uh, Stettin, we always invoke our local deity up there, Triglav, who was the god of the Vendish people who lived there before the Germans came and so on. And he had his temple quite near where our uh, Gompa is. So we included him in our Buddhist practice. So we invoked, you know, the Masa Damsun, the usual guardians of the Dzogchen teachers, but also Trigla, he gets there. And uh, more, more recently, uh, 
Santa Muerte has appeared because I, I met her when I was visiting Houston, Texas, and she's the most popular goddess appearing on the Mexican-U.S. border and so on. She's not just a patron of uh, drug smugglers. She eliminates all kinds of uh, uh, problems and so on. So I'm into the uh, Red Santa Marte and several people who have slept at night in Conca there have had visions of, of, of her. So she's a uh, living uh, power. And uh, after that, we have the Ganapuja or Tantric uh, feast, which is considered an action practice. So it's not uh, separated then from the sadhana, which is considered meditation uh, practice. And uh, the principal function of the Ganapuja is to repair uh, broken Samaya vows uh, with the, the guru, with the Ida meditation deity, and with one's uh, fellow uh, Sangha members, because we're all uh, Vajra brothers and sisters, more than Dharma brothers and sisters, because Vajra brothers and sisters have been initiated into the same uh, model. But as you know, with human beings, there can always be misunderstandings, disagreements, uh, bad temper and things like this. Uh, what do you do to create good feelings again? You throw a, a big uh, um, party. And so then you invite uh, the various guests, the higher spiritual uh, guests, the three roots of uh, gurus, devas, dakinis, which also includes Buddhas, bodhisattvas, and so on. And then secondly, uh, the guardians who have uh, the third eye of wisdom, you invoke them. And then uh, the lower guests, uh, there's the eight classes of spirits, uh, some of whom you may have karmic debts with because of actions uh, committed in previous lives when you have killed them, either in battle or hunting them for food. If they remember you, then they are still pissed off at you and you have this karmic debt with them and they want to invoke karmic retribution upon you. So you apologize to them and you offer them the tarmas here and so on and the other, and the other offerings. And then you have the debts, uh, the guests of your compassion, who are the suffering beings and uh, the six locus or destinies of uh, rebirth among the uh, devas, asuras, humans, animals, pratas, wandering ghosts, and denizens, and hell, and the offerings to relieve their uh, uh, suffering. And so then they're can be places here for some singing and dancing and then the feasting on the offerings. And at the conclusion of the feasting, then some of the leftovers are taken outdoors to uh, the lesser spirits who 
weren't invited into the mandala that's left for them to feast upon them, whether they are the local dogs or insects of whatever form they may appear in. And uh, then there's uh, some other things. Uh, there's also a uh, offering made to the 12 mountain goddesses guard Tibet. And uh, then there's the wild horse dance of uh, Hyogriva to subdue any remaining ne ne negative uh, spirits and so on. And uh, finally, you conclude again with a, a dedication of merit or aspiration prayers and benedictions or uh, best wishes and so on. So, that's the big practice, but you also have much shorter daily practices where you just can keep up your connection with some meditation practice for a particular yidam, if you have one and so on. And it's a lot like that. So you have both meditation where you do transformation, but you also have the summoning of the uh, uh, spirits and so on that you we have in ceremonial magic you know i have a couple of questions following from that one of them is about tub you mentioned this potency this magical potency that one develops through sadhana and so on i wonder what is if you might say what is tub what are its characteristics or what is it and and how is it that sadhana develops that if, if i think of physical potency I can think of various dimensions, physical strength, perhaps physical endurance, and they enable me to do certain things with my body that others might not be able to do. And I can, I can acquire those potencies by lifting weights and, you know, jogging or whatever the case would be. I'm thinking that now also, of, seeing as you mentioned Crowley, I'm thinking of the sorts of things he talks about, this ability, um, this sort of one-pointedness, with the ability to hold one's body in certain position as a practice in, and also a result of a kind of certain equanimity or stability of of mind and body and so on. I wonder if those have relevance here. So could you say something about what is tub and how is it developed through through sadhana or any other means? Uh, tub means uh, the capacity of your psychic power. It's your psychic energy. Now you have a certain amount of that just naturally, but it can also be cultivated and developed. Just as we have our physical muscles, but uh, through sports, uh, lifting weights, uh, dance exercises, martial arts, we can develop further uh, capacity. So this is what we uh, do with the sadhana practice. The sadhana practice is a way for develop ye, your magical or psychic powers, uh, which are called two uh, Tibetan. And these, what did the, what, what are the signs of the development of Tub and what does it enable one to do in the magical or psychic realm? Uh, there are signs, outer, inner, and secret. So uh, certain outer signs may appear. Of course, you may just feel much better, uh, that's a good, good sign. And you may feel more uh, confident and able to do something. 
but there may be physical signs also or material signs in your uh, immediate environment, like you can actually make water boil. You know, if your uh, mantra city develops uh, uh, to that uh, extent, you may also find uh, things suddenly working in your environment and attracting uh, that. Like uh, recently, I did a lot of practice of a better my situation, and suddenly events just fell into place. Uh, whereas uh, a year ago, it didn't look like that uh, uh, at all. And of course, it's important now that uh, we are experiencing, well, here at Cerebus now, the three-headed dog of hell has appeared, and we have this superheat and in the room here. It is now 28 degrees, but much worse down south in Italy or France or with my friends in the U.S., where 28 degrees sounds cool compared to, you know, 45 degrees or 49 degrees. And uh, also, you know, we have various social, political problems that the developed world seems to be becoming more and more insecure and so on. So developing our capacities to deal with that uh, becomes uh, very important. Uh, also, in terms of inner signs, uh, dreams are very important. And uh, Tibetan texts will often list, uh, okay, if you are developing your uh, practice successfully, then certain signs appear as dreams, like uh, uh, seeing snow-clad uh, snow mountains or climbing up a mountain. Uh, blooming flowers, seeing yourself in a red robe or things like this may be uh, uh, signs of uh, success. Also, then more secret level, you may come to understand things you didn't understand previously, or you may feel you are receiving communications from the Dakinis about what is happening in the, or can happen in the uh, uh, future. For example, uh, years ago, it was uh, 2018, I was doing meditation and suddenly I felt the Dakinis were communicating to me and they were telling me, okay, you guys now have 12 years, and then it will be more than a crisis. It will be a catastrophe if you don't do anything. Well, that seems to be happening. <laughs> it's been getting hotter and hotter. <laughs> so at my age, I have to be careful about the heat. I just can't go out running in jogging in the, the sunlight on a day like this or something. So various signs do appear. They've appeared in my own personal experience, but also from what I've heard from others and 
soon. And of course, the Tibetan Lamas were very attuned to this in terms of their uh, own culture. Uh, in the West, sometimes people tend to dismiss all of this and think, oh, things just go on the way they've always gone on. Uh, but they don't. Things are changing all the time, and they seem to be changing more rapidly nowadays. Is this partly what explains some of the, uh, should we say, unusual capacities and uh, unusual effects around the Galwa Karmapa, uh, to take one example, who I think fa fam is famously, was famously very magical in uh, in many ways, and somebody well, yes, and I saw it myself. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> oh yes. I mean, uh, I've never seen somebody with such strong psychic energy uh, because he would sit there on a throne and he would just send it out like this. It was palpable. You could touch it. I mean, I saw him uh, uh, knock a holy needle on his ass, you know, with just energy uh, coming. He was, uh, was incredible. Yeah. As Jimmy Riggs and Rinpoche used to say, the Karmapa is the king. Yes. <laughs> well, I think we're approaching near the end of uh, our of this episode, I must petition you, I think, for a triptych, a third. Oh, sure. No problem. Because I'm we haven't even touched... Hot, but otherwise, no problem. Yeah. We haven't even touched the stories of your lamas. I'd like to to, to ask about them, and in particular, lamas such as the Gyalwa Karmapa, but others, uh, uh, Kamapa too, but others too. Perhaps then to round out, and we might pick this up next time as well, you're talking about Tup and you're talking about sadhana and these um, uh, these various practices. You've also investigated a great deal of Tibetan shamanism, oh. exorcism and soul retrieval, or sometimes called la hooking, that sort of thing. How does this sort of, these practices and these capacities, how do they interact with Exorcism and soul retrieval, soul retrieval, as as it's understood in Tibetan shamanism and in the Nyingma school, etc. When we do sadhana, uh, this is the method to develop city. And here there are two levels of uh, city. The ultimate spiritual city is, of course, the ultimate spiritual goal of liberation from suffering and samsara and the attaining of Buddha enlightenment. But for most of us. That's a bit down the road. It's not tomorrow or the next day. It's probably not even our next life and so on. But in the meantime, we need a little help from our friends. And so these more ordinary cities are very useful. Now, of course, they don't seem so ordinary to us if we start developing cities where we can do distant viewing, clair, uh, clairvoyance or clairaudience or telepathy, we suddenly know the thoughts of others or uh, remembering past lives or uh, attracting prosperity and so on. But uh, these are very useful on 
the uh, path because uh, we are fallible human beings. We have to make a living. We have to deal with all the things that are in everyday life and so on. If we can develop our capacities that facilitate that, then this is something very uh, positive. I think generally now uh, the medical profession has come to recognize that meditation practice can be very useful. We're not talking about religion at all, but very useful for re reducing stress, getting people to relax and uh, all, all, all this. And so the man's benefits are not just restricted to Buddhist practitioners. They're open to uh, everywhere, uh, everyone. Of course, this is a part of my comparative interest where I find similar things in different cultures and traditions and uh, so on. And uh, uh, many of these things are, are not uh, unique to Buddhism at all, but Buddhism has a very empirical uh, emphasis, looking at what is our condition in life here and now, and what can we do about this to better our condition to be more uh, uh, effective and so on. It isn't a matter of uh, converting to some religion and exclusively worshiping this God or, or that God. The Buddha was not an atheist. He was not an agnostic. He admitted all the uh, gods exist. And uh, when it's useful to you, you can invoke them. You can offer puja to them. You can worship them if, if you on. So they don't have this obsession that the Jews had, whether we have our God and all those other gods over there, you know, are evil or don't exist. So all the gods exist that people believe in uh, because they're products of their uh, belief and represent then their own psychic energy. And we live in this collective uh, envelope of energy around the earth, which is generated by all the living beings who are bound upon this uh, planet and so on. So what's important is that we have this intercultural dialogue and so on. Is that dialogue, you're not selling something, you're not trying to convert somebody. I don't care about converting the whole world to Buddhism or, or this, but uh, you can find things in various tra traditions that can interrelate and so on. So I'm definitely in favor of multilingualism and multiculturalism and so on. Well, this has been so fascinating. Thank you very much. And okay. I, look I look forward to the third. And perhaps in that episode, we can pick up right. uh, this theme of exorcism and uh, soul retrieval or lie hooking and and also discuss your various lamas and so on. That would be very cool indeed. John Mirjan Reynolds, Lama Vajranatha, thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you, Guru Viking. Namaste. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.